This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. And welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lala Erikoglu. Hello. In the most recent issue of Traveler, chef, food writer, and author of Save Me the Plums, Ruth Reichel wrote about a spontaneous seafood lunch in Italy she'll never forget. It made me so hungry and had me yearning for faraway yet undiscovered restaurants that I hope to stumble upon in the near future. This week, we decided to call her up to chat all things food and travel. Thank you so much for joining us, Ruth. My pleasure. I feel like we start every episode with it's a weird time, but it's a weird time and we're not traveling. And we at this point have been staying in our homes for quite a few months. So I would love to know when you cannot be having a seafood lunch in Italy, how you are traveling through food at home. Well, you know, because I do travel a lot normally, and it's very strange to be just here, um, I find myself really trying to cook a lot of the foods I would be eating if I were somewhere else. So I've been cooking a lot of Asian food, and I have amassed a huge collection of Asian condiments, you know, all kinds of Korean condiments and soy sauces from different countries and oyster sauces and um, Szechuan chili crisps and on and on. You know, then I, I will go through that phase and then suddenly I want to be in Mexico. So I'm suddenly, you know, ordering really good masa and making my own tortillas and getting beans from Rancho Gordo and making, you know, as good as I can Mexican food myself. And then, you know, the one thing, I live in the Hudson River Valley, um, just south of Albany and um, landlocked. And I find myself just yearning for seafood. So I have actually been ordering fish that I have learned to like get whole fish and cut them up myself for sushi. Um, You can get them overnight. And um, I've ordered really good nori to wrap them up in. And I find myself ordering more and more and better rices. Um, So I am trying to eat as if I were traveling in my own kitchen. So, you know, you mentioned that obviously you're used to traveling a lot. And it sounds like 
food and traveling through your food has been maybe a little bit of a coping mechanism when you haven't been able to do that. What have the last five months been like for you? I feel like there have been stages for me during this period at home, and I'm interested to know whether there have been stages for you. Well, yes and no, because we were in Los Angeles and suddenly on March 11th, it suddenly hit us that if we didn't get out of there, we might never get home. I mean, we suddenly had this fear of, oh my God, they're going to close the airports and we'll be stuck here. So we came skittering home and just for the first time coming up here and going to supermarkets and seeing empty shelves, it suddenly hit me that this was going to change the food landscape forever. That I don't know what it will be when we come out the other side, but it is not going to be the normal that we were used to. We're not going to have that normal anymore. So I literally spend all day, every day, Zooming with farmers and fishermen and chefs and people in the wholesale food space and people in the charity space and waiters and ranchers. I mean, people all over the country. So my mood is sort of changing as people's moods do. So like in the beginning, you know, when you talk to restaurateurs, it was, we'll get through this. It, it'll, you know, well, this'll be a short time. We'll get through it. And then a couple months ago, after it became clear that restaurants weren't going to open anytime soon, everybody's mood just plummeted. And as we watched other countries handle this pandemic so much better than this country has handled it, uh, I think everybody's mood just went down. And farmers is very different. Small farmers in affluent areas are doing really well. So you speak to them and they've never done better. So you get suddenly uplifted. And then you talk to mid-sized farms in the Midwest and the picture for them is dire. So my mood sort of goes up and down depending who I'm speaking to that day. I feel like every day you're seeing beloved restaurants announce that they're closing because they can't afford what their landlord is now charging them in rent. One of Lala and Mai's favorite, Uncle Boone's, just announced that it was not going to be reopening. You know, beyond buying a gift card, how should we be supporting restaurants through our own dining habits during this time? Like, what are you doing and what are you hearing is working? Uh, you know, it's really hard to support restaurants. I mean, most restaurants aren't making any money right now. I mean, the ones that are surviving are doing so because people are managing to make ends meet just barely. So, you know, obviously one thing you do is if you do order out, tip hugely. I mean, those people aren't making the kind of money they ought to be making. But I mean, the one thing that I find myself doing is so many restaurants are feeding out-of-work restaurant workers. They're feeding, you know, the first responders. And so I've been buying not gift cards for me to use later, but, you know, when you order something, say, you know, can I buy a meal for someone else uh, that take this money and use it? Because, you know, so many restaurants are now feeding other people. And I think that's the best thing you can do. You know, be generous. And the other thing is, like, I happen to have spent most of today talking to servers, out-of-work servers. 
And the stories they tell you about how badly people behave in restaurants is stunning, just stunning. And so the first thing you do when you go to a restaurant is behave yourself, wear a mask, keep your distance, um, understand that these people are taking their lives into their hands to feed you. I mean, the stories I heard today were just truly shocking. You know, you mentioned the farmers um, and kind of talking a lot to them. You know, I think a lot of people, when they have been cooking for themselves more, are starting to think more about the ingredients they're buying and their own relationship to food. And Samin Nosrat recently talked about how gardening and growing things had proved very therapeutic to her. And I'm wondering how your relationship to ingredients has started to evolve and kind of if you started to think differently about where they're coming from or the research you want to do before you purchase them. You know, I'm very fortunate because I'm totally surrounded by farmers and I do order foods online. But other than that, I am buying almost everything from neighbors. And my hope is that as more people do that, I mean, one of the problems with American food is that we have become extremely divorced from our ingredients. I mean, there's a lot of good news that could come out of this pandemic for food people. And one of them is that Americans are cooking again. They are um, getting to know the people who raise their food. They're really starting to understand that, I mean, once you've eaten a chicken that never saw the inside of a confined facility, you know, have been, you know, pecking around in the grass for all of their life. You never want to go back to industrial chickens or eggs. And, you know, right now we're in high summer. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful. And, and up here, it's been a very good growing season. So, you know, I go to these farms and, you know, I watch people come in with their children and, you know, the children walk around and they sort of understand, you know, that yogurt comes from milk from a cow and they can see the cows. And, you know, um, coming out of World War II, almost everybody in America was connected to a farm in one way or another. They saw farmers. I mean, even people in cities, still, they were still milkmen and, you know, people who produced their food. And we have become terribly divorced from that, um, which is one of the reasons that I think we have the problems that we do have. Another thing that I really hope will come out of this is, you know, meat has been very vilified these days and everybody's talking about plant-based meat alternatives. The truth is that you cannot run a small sustainable farm without animals. In real farming and regenerative farming, you need animals as well as vegetables and that they, they all interact together in a wonderful way. And I'm hoping people will sort of you know, get to know how farming really works and that, you know, we will have a more regenerative food movement. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshveg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story, or creating a story, is this 
inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. I am someone who loves, loves restaurants so much. But already I'm thinking about how I think my restaurant habits are going to change whenever they do reopen and dining inside a restaurant is a possibility again. And maybe I will cherish it a bit more and think of it as more of a special thing and not quite as, you know, throwaway as I think I had in New York before. Do you foresee as people's relationship to food and hopefully sort of sustainably eating changes that our relationships to restaurants will change? I'm sure that I'm sure it will change. And, you know, and I think one thing that will happen, there will be fewer restaurants or fewer of the kinds of restaurants we love to go to. And I think we will cherish them more. But I also think that, you know, if you're not eating two thirds of your meals out, you'll be willing to spend more for your meals. I mean, one of the reasons that our restaurants have been in so much trouble is because they're too cheap. And, you know, when you go out and you buy your food from a farmer, you understand how expensive it is. I mean, how, I mean, good ingredients cost a lot of money. We travel, you go to France and you look at what the price is on the menu and it reflects a couple of things. And one is that it's not a tipping economy. So people are being paid fairly. And second, that it reflects the real cost of food. And, you know, you go, oh my God, this is so expensive, but you're willing to spend it if you're in another country, if you're in France or Japan or you know, uh, Copenhagen, and you go, okay, well, that's just what it costs here. I hope that Americans will you know, start to say, well, wait a minute, you know, we need to pay what it, what it really costs. If we want restaurants to survive, we have to be willing to pay fairly for the pleasure that they're giving us. When we started recording the podcast from home, we chatted with a contributor of ours who was talking about how, since this was one of the first times she was spending extended times at home, she was finally getting through all of the ingredients that she had bought as souvenirs, thinking, oh, I'll cook with these at some point, and then had never stayed home long enough to cook with them. <laughs> um, are there any ingredients that you have picked up in your travels before this started that you found yourself turning to or finishing during this time? Well, you know, I, I I do travel a lot and I do travel to eat and I've been doing it for a long time. So, um, you know, one of the things is, you know, I never leave Spain without buying saffron because it's, it's a lot less expensive there. And suddenly I've had to actually pay American prices for saffron because I can't live without it. 
And, you know, I come home always with great ingredients from Italy and I find myself ordering like real capers. I can't tell you how many capers we've gone through. Um, and you know, I've always come home with like great olive oil from both France and Spain and Italy. And suddenly I'm ordering all these things online because they've, they're just running out. So yes, I, you know, I count on being able to travel and bring these ingredients back with me. And now suddenly here I am ordering them online. I mean, I have to, de I've developed a great passion for Spanish anchovies from Cantabria. I mean, they, and they are unbelievably delicious, not like any other anchovy you've ever eaten. They're kind of sweet and meaty and, you know, the perfect expression of umami. I, I just, I, I've just been ordering them and ordering and ordering them because I ran out of them. <laughs> Where are you finding the things that you want online? Oh, there are so many places. I mean, I order my fish from Brown Trading Company, which is uh, a wholesale fish place that, you know, normally sells to places like La Bernada, and they overnight gorgeous products to you. I order Italian things from Bustiamo, which is a wonderful source for Italian food. There are some Korean food sites that I go to regularly. And then some of the restaurants I love most have started selling so Atomics, for instance, sells wonderful Korean products. And um, I mean, that would be the first place that I would look. You know, I would call up a restaurant and say, you know, are you selling these and will you send them to me? I think one of the, you know, small silver linings has been getting to shop at my favorite restaurants, which is something that I had never considered a possibility until a few months ago. Um, I would like to shout out Hearts and the Fly for really supplying me with beans <laughs> the last few months. But it feels, I mean, obviously it was a moment of creativity that came out of desperation to stay afloat, but it does kind of I maybe give a little bit of a glimmer of what maybe things could look like on the other side as we start to reevaluate and, you know, we touched on this a little bit, but, you know, what positive changes do you hope to see on the other side, in addition to the way we sustainably eat? Like, what could the restaurant experience be like? I think it's going to take a while. But the first thing is that, you know, so many restaurants have started selling these boxes. So takeout will be completely different because you won't get something that was totally made and, you know, has spent two hours getting, making its way to you, getting soggier and sadder as it you know, crossed the city. I mean, now you get these, these mise en place, basically, that you put together yourself. And it's a revelation as a way of having takeout where, you know, most of them come with written directions. You do this, you do this, here's the sauce, you know, cook this fish for so many minutes. Uh, you know, you can, you know, make uh, this bosom, Anyway, I, I find that this whole notion of you become the kind of sous chef to the chef. And, and that's certainly one thing. I think we're also all just so hungry for that experience of being in a restaurant. And I know, you know, chefs are. They are, they, you know, all of them that I've spoken to has, have said to me, this just isn't fun anymore. 
You know, I, I got into this business because I love to feed people and I like to be in the restaurant and talk to them and touch them. And, you know, I'm doing this to keep alive at the moment, but it's not fun. And I think we're all really understanding what hospitality means to us and how important it is to us and how much we love to be in that space with convivial hosts. So I think we're appreciating that in a new way. And I think Restaurants are sort of redefining what their place in society is. I also think that, you know, one of the things that has been so hard for restaurants has been rent. You know, I mean, I, I, when I was the restaurant critic of the New York Times, I once wrote a piece that said, you know, really what you're going, you're not really paying for the food, you're renting your table. You know, you're renting that space and you're paying them to rent that space. And after this, there, there are going to be a lot of empty restaurants and prices are going to come down. And it's going to mean that there are real opportunities for creative young chefs to you know, do the kind of wild things that they couldn't do before. So I'm anticipating that a year after the crisis ends, we're going to see this wild creativity. We're going to see, you know, new young chefs who may be thinking smaller. My guess is that the independent restaurateurs are going to want to do something that's smaller. I think chefs are rethinking what their role is and thinking of themselves as teachers as much, you know, that they, what they want to do is be mentors to the next generation, which is, you know, a very different way. I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at chefs who have been wildly abusive. You know, I mean, if you read Bill Buford's new book, Dirt, which is wonderful, but, you know, he taught, he went and spent five years working in a very high end kitchen in France and the abuse is, is unbelievable. And that's sort of what's been accepted in the restaurant world. I don't think that's gonna fly anymore after this. I mean, the conjunction of all of these moments and everybody's you know, introspection is gonna mean that kitchens are gonna be very different places. And I think restaurants are gonna be happier places. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. You know, another big topic of conversation in the food world this summer, as well as, you know, the future of restaurants and what that looks like, has been cultural appropriation in food media. How has it impacted the way you're thinking about food writing and your own cooking? And 
also, how do you think these conversations will change the way that we find inspiration and food when we're traveling and bring back those ideas and those recipes? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's been a fascinating conversation, you know, as we all look at, we're all white right now here. And um, there's no question that when you have a media that's one color, it privileges that particular kind of food. And I judged actually for Condé Nast Traveler India last year, I judged a food writing contest and I was stunned by how little I knew about Indian food. And I thought I knew a fair amount about Indian food, but I was stunned, you know, reading these articles and cookbooks about uh, how unbelievably ignorant I am. And that was really eye-opening for me. And now, you know, now as I, you know, read more and more about, you know, the food that is, has just been underreported in this country. But, you know, I think we're going to start seeing, you know, cookbooks coming out about, you know, food, you know, I mean, most of Africa is unfamiliar to most Americans, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a giant continent with a huge diversity of food, um, with very sophisticated food. There's so much of the world that we know very little about. And it's all waiting there for us. And we're going to get it. And it's thrilling. It's really thrilling. I want to shout out one cookbook um, from Hawa Hassan, who is coming out with a cookbook called In Bibi's Kitchen. She's Somali, and she is putting out a cookbook about eight African countries that all touch the Indian Ocean. And she is such a great follow on Instagram. I cannot wait to read her cookbook and hopefully cook and learn. And the photography looks absolutely stunning. So next up on the to-buy list. (laughs) When you think of it from the traveler's perspective, how do you think we're going to change the way we travel for food? Because I think the three of us, probably you more than Lolly and I, but the three of us definitely integrate traveling specifically for restaurants, for dishes, into the way that we move around. How do you think that's going to play out? I think people are going to be more adventurous. I mean, I think, you know, after a year of everybody eating their own cooking, people who could have looked at things and went, oh, don't, I, I wouldn't eat that. Or, Give me that. I, I'm, I'm hungry for new tastes. Um, I, I really think we're all going to be very excited about going out and tasting new things. And, you know, I think we're going to have a generation of children who are cooking with their moms, maybe for the first time in their lives. You know, I mean, I mean, I know when my son was young, you know, when I couldn't figure out what to do with him, we went into the kitchen. And I'm sure that's what's happening now with, you know, people with young children. You know, you go in and you mix up a batch of bread and it's like, oh, it's rising, you know. Um, and so I think we're, we're going to have a generation of young children who sort of understand food in a way that previous generations didn't. Um, are eager to try new things. I hope so. I hope so too. (laughs) As someone who is a former or reformed picky eater, I very much stand by the fact that all I want right now is like the most out there food that I cannot cook in my kitchen because I'm getting so tired of eating my own food. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, before you had the whole world at, you know, 
at your fingertips, right? Anything you wanted, you could, you know, Thai, Korean, Mexican, Ethiopian. And now, you know, we're all sort of eating a lot of pasta. <laughs> I always used to joke that I was like, oh, I could eat, if I could any meal, I just, I could eat pasta every day for the rest of my life and be content. And now I'm like, I don't actually don't, <laughs> I don't think, think I it's could, true. at least not the pasta I'm making. <laughs> Maybe if it was the seafood restaurant in Italy. I'm still pretty happy with pasta, truth be told. <laughs> I can almost guarantee that your pasta is miles ahead of what Lala and I are making for ourselves, though. Yeah. Oh, I, I have got better, I think. Um, to wrap this up, we have one final question for you, which is what's the first meal you plan to fly for? Well, I had planned to go to Copenhagen. I was in Copenhagen last November and it blew me away. I mean, the food was so wonderful and so varied and I was only there for two days. I have a group of women that I travel to eat with and we were supposed to take a group through Italy and then we were going to go back to Copenhagen for longer. So I am going to do that. I'm also, I mean, I'm dying to go back to Japan. Um, I was supposed to go to Vietnam in March and that trip got canceled. You know, there's so, there's so many places. The whole world, Ruth. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, so, so many great places and so little time. Um, but Copenhagen first. You bet you kind of listed all the places that were on my list for 2020. <laughs> we've doing this. We've been doing this podcast for two years, yeah, something like that. And every single year, Lala's like, "I'm going to Vietnam, guys." Uh, so 2021, yeah, fingers, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to potentially follow this future Copenhagen trip, where can they find you on social media and on the internet? Um, so I am on Twitter, it's at Ruth Reichel, and on Instagram, it's uh, Ruth.Reichel. Perfect. I'm at Oh Hey There Mayor. I'm at Lale Hannah. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter. We will also link to Ruth's amazing story from the September issue in the show notes as well. And we'll talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. <laughs>